even the idea of saying like, I think I'm good enough to write for Homer Simpson, you know, <laughs> is a pretty big, you have to have yeah. a pretty big ego in that way. But at the same time, you have to give it over to the collective, to the room. And so it's just a long way of saying, if you become too defensive about your stuff, you know, if you pitch something and the room runner shoots it down, whatever, and then you just, okay, I'll get them the next time. Brian Smith here, and welcome to the Dream Path Podcast, where I try to get inside the heads of talented creatives from all over the world. My goal is to demystify and humanize the creative process and make it accessible to everyone. Now let's jump in. Michael Price is on the show. Mike has been a writer and co-executive producer on The Simpsons for more than 20 years. In 2014, Mike co-created a serialized animated series for Netflix with comedian Bill Burr called F is for Family. Executive produced by Mike, Bill, and Vince Vaughn, F is for Family stars Bill Burr, Laura Dern, Justin Long, Sam Rockwell, Haley Reinhart, and Debbie Derryberry. The show follows the Murphy family back to the 1970s when kids roamed wild, beer flowed freely, and nothing came between a man and his TV. It's a hilarious, nostalgic, and heartfelt series, and you can watch all five seasons on Netflix. And of course, I probably don't need to say this, because after three decades, I'm sure everyone in America knows where to watch. But you can also check out all 33 seasons of The Simpsons on Fox Now or Hulu. In this interview, we talk about Mike's journey into theater, improv, and then writing in Hollywood. We also talk about how he landed his first writing gigs in Hollywood, how working on less successful shows opened up opportunities on more successful shows, how he found his way to the writer's room of The Simpsons, why he decided to create his own series with F is for Family, and what it was like working with Bill Burr on that series. Mike also shares advice and tips for aspiring writers trying to break into the industry and talks about what not to do in a writer's room to have longevity as a television writer. So without further ado, let's jump into my chat with Mike Price. Mike Price. How are you? Welcome to Dream Path Podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm very good. Thanks. Well, let's jump right in. What is going on right now with you professionally? I know that F is for Family ended after five seasons. Yes. And uh, what a fun serialized animation series that was. I've never seen anything like it before. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it was new for all of us, you know. Uh well, to answer your question, I'm back at The Simpsons. Uh, the Simpsons has been so nice to me over these past several years. And that when uh, when Episode Family first got uh, picked up by Netflix for six episodes, they let me just sort of go away for a little while, like take what you like a hiatus or a sabbatical, or whatever, like an unpaid vacation. Mm, okay. For a couple of months, and then go off and do that, and then I come back. We started writing the. Um, First season of Epster Family in the fall of 2014. So basically for the last six or seven years, that was my my deal. Yeah. You know, so uh I, and it would it would be like a year, like six months off, and then come back and like for a whole full year of doing all the post-production and editing and stuff, Epster Family. And then it would come out and then they'd when they order a second another season, I'd say, uh, do you ever do that again? <laughs> they'd be like, sure, it's okay. You know, so I've done that, I did that five different times. And now I've been back at The Simpsons uh, ever since uh, we finished, we wrapped the writing of, of Episode Family um, basically around this time or so a year ago. Mm -hmm. So I've been back at The Simpsons full time for a year or more. Tell us what it is about that family of folks at The Simpsons and the relationship that you formed over the years with them that allowed you to do that, to take that risk with Episode Family with Bill Burr and, and kind of do your own thing. Well, it's an incredible staff. It's an incredible experience. Uh, we're all get along with each other really well. By the time Ephesus Family came around, which was, like I said, around, you know, by the time it became a real thing that I was going to have to leave and do, it was sort of like the summer of 2014. So by that point, I had already been working on the show for 13 years. Yeah. <laughs> so I had established a little bit of a work record with them. And, uh, you know, I'd never done anything like this before. Right. I had written some pilots and I'd written some things for like movie scripts that some, some of which got somewhere, some of which didn't. I'd written a few of these Lego Star Wars specials that I got to do. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but nothing that made me have to like actually say, I got to go away for a little while. So um, I was very concerned at the time when I was very excited when Netflix ordered us for the first season of Family, but I was very worried like, oh, 
you know, what's going to happen now? I'm, I'm, do I really want to leave like the greatest job in, in the history of uh, show business, you know, for this thing that may or may not go? Uh, but they were so supportive and great. And um, especially Al Jean, who the showrunner, mm-hmm. um, Matt Selman, the other showrunner, and and Jim Brooks, Richard Sakai, the, the people there at Gracie Films. And um, they were like, well, you got to do this. This is your chance to do your own thing, you know. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. We'll be right. We'll, we'll take you back, you know. So that was very, very wonderful and very freeing, you know. And it was great. You get the best of both worlds because you do have the fallback plan, uh, which most artists I've talked to talk about the importance of not having a plan B to, you know, get them motivated to do yeah. the thing they really want to do. They just jump <laughs> in, and, and um, yeah. if they fail, they fail spectacularly. But you have this backup plan which is the cadillac of all backup plans which is the simpsons but i will say this that that that's how i got into how i started out my at the beginning of my path of doing this was that i had no backup plan like i i you know i i imagine you were going to ask me a little bit about that anyway but uh oh yeah i you know i i was a theater major in college and and then after that as well and i did theater local theater and New Jersey, where I'm from. Uh, and then I got involved in uh, doing like improv and sketch comedy. And that sort of taught me like, oh, that's a that's a path that I could take. I'm, I think I'm funny enough. And I did perform with a, a sketch comedy group in New York. And then- That was Gotham, right? It was called Gotham City Improv. That's right. Yeah. Right. And then I had a friend in there who we became writing and performing partners and we formed our own sort of break off kind of two-person act from our sketch comedy group. That then became a thing that people thought was good and liked us. And that's what gave us the encouragement to say, like, this could be something. So mm-hmm. uh, we had enough people who told us they thought we were good and that we should try to come out to L.A. and see what that, that's where all the work was. Definitely at that time, which was the early 90s. Um, so we just kind of threw everything in a car and just had a few contacts out here. Some people who wanted to help us out. And we came out and with some money saved and just pursued it, you know, and, and it had ups and downs. We had some success, but never kind of broke through the way we thought we were going to. But by that point I was here and I was like, I'm not going to go back to Jersey now and like, <laughs> act like, well, it didn't work out and go get a job somewhere or whatever. And, right. and I had no skills. I really had no, the only other skill I had aside from, from this was that I I'd spent the last couple of years, my, my survival job, whatever was working as a proofreader at a law firm. Hmm. So, well, I'll go back and be a proof. I'm not going to do that. You know, so I was like, I'm here. I'm not going to leave until something happens. And so I had really had no plan. I had zero plan B. So, yeah. Well, that's great. Yeah. So you're in LA and you have this improv experience. You have this theater background in university. And, you know, what were your thoughts before you got your first writing gig in terms of your trajectory? Were you thinking stand up? Were you thinking acting? Where did you think you were going to fit in the whole scheme of things? Yeah, I didn't really know. I, uh, stand up is uh, people I admire stand ups so much. Uh, and I've just spent many years working with one of the greatest of all time, uh, Bill Burr. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I have such great admiration for what they can do to hold stage for as long as they do. And um, I never could do that. I almost tried it once when I was working at that law firm in New York. It was on the east side of New York at around 3rd Avenue and 52nd Street. And a comedy club opened like around the corner from the office building where I worked at. And I was like- Beckoning you. Yeah, I know. And it was like open mic night, all that stuff. You know, that would be the story of like, I'm going to go do that. But I, I thought about it. I just couldn't bring myself to do it. At the time, I was already doing improv and sketch, which is more you're with other people and you're playing a character. And yeah. so I was comfortable doing that, but I was never comfortable just being one-on-one on a stage. And I didn't know how to write those kinds of jokes, that kind of material. So, But being in this improv group taught me uh, how to write like SNL style sketches or how to come up with a funny idea. We would do these kind of improv games mm-hmm. that would then, uh, in the course of doing what's called freeze tag or these kind of improv type games, you might come up with a funny idea. And then the teacher would say, okay, now take that funny idea. And now that's a germ of an idea. Now go home and come back in two days with a sketch yeah. based on that, or, or take that character and write a monologue for that character. So that was how I learned how to sort of take an idea and then 
flesh it out and, and to write it. So, and then we would test it out. We'd do it in front of an audience or audience of our peers first, but then uh, we were in this regular Saturday night uh, show where, okay, the thing I wrote got a lot of laughs. So I guess I'm pretty good at this. You know, so that's where I started to learn, like, this could be a place to be. I, I tried acting. I liked the performing aspect of it, but I had an agent. And um, when we first, even when we came out to Los Angeles, my partner, my writing partner, she was um, much more of an accomplished performer. She had a more of a commercial look, you know, and she was really, really good at it. Uh, and I was, eh, I was, I didn't look like anything, you know, I was <laughs> type you, you know, especially for, for commercials. Like I, I had a commercial acting agent. Right. So they go, oh, you're the young dad or you're like, everything is like a type. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I remember that first couple of months or year or so of first being out here in LA, uh, I had this agent, they sent me out for a bunch of things commercial auditions and also auditioning to be like a small part on a sitcom. Like I auditioned for a part on the John Laro cat show. I remember that. Oh yeah. I remember that show. I think maybe a Murphy Brown or something, but I never got anywhere, but it was fun to go to these auditions. And I, I would see these like famous people like waiting to go in for the audition next to me. Like to me, they were famous. I grew up as a kid, like watching TV and just like inhaling everything, you know, uh -huh. So I'm, I know I'm digressing, but one of the auditions I went in for was for a commercial for something. I can't remember what it was, but the guy sitting next to me, was in a clockwork orange. He was, uh, <laughs> if you're familiar with the clockwork orange. It was a Malcolm McDowell? <laughs> no, it wasn't <laughs> Malcolm McDowell. And I don't remember the man's name. I could look it up. But he played the guy who was named Mr. Deltoid, who was Alex, Malcolm McDowell's sort of like caseworker, social okay. worker, who comes to yeah. him and says like, oh, well, come here right in school, Alex, eh? Yeah. Bit of a headache, eh? Like that guy, you know? <laughs> I was like, oh my God, you're Mr. Deltoid? And he's like, yes, yes, that was me. I had a oh good time working with Stanley, you know? I was like, all right, next. And he's going into like audition for like a raisin bran commercial or something you know yeah so that was sort of like i knew i got an idea of like that's what boy that's what this life is like this actor life now all these years later what i know i have friends who are actors a lot of it is just like you tape yourself on your phone and you send your audition in right but back then they didn't have that so you had to go like all over town and los angeles is sprawling as you know mm -hmm. so one day i'd be like all the way up in north hollywood and then an hour later i had to be in venice beach which is like an hour drive i had a crappy car and like what one, the one audition I did have was for some kind of raisin brand or something. I remember um, all it was, was it was a, it was some kind of cereal, like a raisin brand. And the idea of the commercial was that they doubled the amount of raisins in the raisin brand. <laughs> so you were supposed to hold a little spoon, right? And then you're supposed to go like, it has a regular amount of raisins. And then suddenly it has more raisins and like the spoon goes, whoop, and you're supposed to go like, like that. So I'm sitting there like for an hour, like waiting to go in and they go, all right, you're in. Okay. Whoop. Okay, thank you. That was it. I was in for like 10 seconds. Oh my gosh. So I was like, this is not for me. This is not going to get me anywhere. I never got any acting work. So I said, the writing is what I know. The writing is what I get. And I had a friend who was a, um, a guy who helped me out quite a bit when I first moved here, who was, a, um, he was from my hometown and uh, he had gotten work. He was an assistant director on, on a sitcom called Nurses, which was a, a show made by the same people that made the Golden Girls. And um, he was an assistant director on that show. And so I got to see what that life was a little bit like just vicariously through him because he let me sort of stay on his couch for like a couple of weeks when I first moved out here. And um, so I kind of got the idea of like, oh, I saw scripts for the first time because they would deliver the new script for the show at his house. Mm. So I get to read a script and, oh, I get it, you know. And then he told me, he was like, he's like, look, acting can be great, but you could be a guy who maybe like gets a part on a show like this on a sitcom and it runs for like, a season or two seasons and then maybe that's it yeah you know but if you're a writer and you're good especially in in the sitcom world and you do a good job then there's a good chance that you'll go on to the next thing or the next thing after that yeah more longevity yeah so i just focused everything on on that once our our sort of superstardom dream hit the wall uh you know after we'd been here about a year <laughs> and it was like another year of me literally just hunkering down, writing everything I could, writing sample material of different kinds. He used to write like spec, uh, called spec scripts, which were like samples of shows that were already on the air as if like I pretended I'm a writer on Murphy Brown now, or I'm a writer on right. whatever it was, Coach, I think I wrote one of those. Um, oh, I heard you wrote one for news radio, right? I did. That's the one that got me, that got me, that finally broke through for me was it one for, because I love news radio. It had just come out. Great show. It was like around 95 or so. And uh, I think this is great. I love this. And I wrote, a, I wrote a spec news radio that got some attention that got me, I had an agent, but I'm sort of backing all over the place, but the, the hardest thing to get is an agent. And that was the first thing that happened to us, which is that we had a manager and the manager helped us get an agent. Hmm. So I didn't realize at the time, but that's the hardest thing. So I had the agent, then the agent had to 
get me somewhere, you know, but like, luckily I had the agent. So the agent sent that in and people, someone at Disney, uh, like that news radio. And then they passed it on to some of the people who were staffing their shows. And it was a boom going on right then because there were all these other new networks were coming along. There was UPN mm-hmm. and this is 95, 96 UPN, uh, the WB, the WWWB was called. I remember. Yeah. And there were all these sitcoms. So I got staffed on one. Uh, I got rid of my stuff like that brought me in and it was the show called Homeboys in Outer Space. That was on the UPN. <laughs> Great. But he read my script and liked it. So that was that was good. Wow. So writing in Hollywood in the nineties, you're you're what, in your thirties at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So what happened between the I guess the mid nineties and today in terms of evolution in the writing industry and what is still the same in terms of like cardinal rules and keys to success? Well, I would think generally in my, in my experience, the way things are done are largely the same, the way a, a room is run. I mean, the basic nuts and bolts of writing a show, a comedy show, haven't changed that much. Uh, it's still a staff of, depending on the budget of the show, the staff can be very big or it can be very small. The Simpsons has a very big staff that they've earned over you know 30 plus years of being on Fox. Um, Ephesus family had a very small staff, but it's still the same way where there's one person who was in charge of the room called the showrunner or the room runner, if the showrunner isn't doing it, who sets the tone, who says, okay, we're working on this today and sort of guides everyone. And it is very improv heavy in that way of like building on what the other person said and, you know, pitching on jokes and either you're working straight on the script, which means that you're working on pitching better lines for a script that already has been written, or you're at the beginning of the process where you're just sort of blue skying a new story and like that. But it's a lot of that. It's a lot of collaboration that way. So that hasn't changed that much. Uh, what has changed, I think, a lot has, has been, well, the whole playing field has changed because now there's not just, well, I guess when I did Homeboys in Outer Space, there were six networks. So there was CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, UPN, and, and WB. And then there was, H- but HBO wasn't really doing much at the time. There was Larry Sanders' show, which I really loved. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of cable going on. And now, of course, it's, you know, it's exploded. And right. there's all, all those networks are the same except UPN and WB combined to become CW, but there's tons of streaming and that's great. I remember, I remember 20 years ago or so being on a show where one of the guys, one of the writers was sort of a a doomsayer. It was around the time that like, who wants to be a millionaire and uh, survivor were first starting to hit, hit it big. And, you know, and so suddenly they were like, ah, that's it. We're, we're all done. Like (laughs) within five years, there'll be zero scripted shows anymore, you know, and here it is 20 years later. And there's like, whatever 500 scripted shows so mm-hmm. so in that way it's changed a lot it's been a lot more opportunity a lot more shows out there and a show like Ephesus family would never really couldn't have existed outside of the new kind of way we do things now with streaming and things like that yeah it seems like there's with the expanded streaming marketplace there's just more places for more homes for extremely niche types of shows yes if you would have told me in the mid 90s that a serialized cartoon where there's cussing, where there's you know sex scenes and innuendo and that type of thing right. that adults would watch and it would be popular and would last for five seasons like F is for Family, I would say you know you're crazy. That's yeah, yeah, science fiction. But it's happening today, and I think that's one of the the great benefits of having all of these platforms. I'm wondering though, does it in a way dilute the playing field to the point where it's really hard to be seen and heard? Because like you say, there's 500 shows, there's a sea of content out there. Are there challenges to just staying relevant and staying, you know, keeping that show alive when um, there's so many, you know, so many places you can go to see things that are not in your network? That's true. I mean, well, there, there seems to be less and less of shows, let's say, that everybody knows, you know, like maybe one or two a year, there'll be shows that are broadly popular that become a thing that everyone talks about. Right. So right now I'd say in my, in my world, it's like succession on HBO is like the show that everybody talks about. Right. But I imagine, I don't know what the numbers are for that show. You know, they're probably like maybe 8 million people watch it a week or something out of 300 million in the United States. So, you know, right. There's not that many big giant hits anymore. Um, so, like ER or so, the days of right. ER and Seinfeld or Friends is yeah. I mean those the, those days are never coming back. Yeah, I mean the biggest network hit now probably is like This Is Us, I think, which just started its last season last night, and I don't know what the ratings for that are, but they're still 
it's still nothing like it was for a show like like you're saying, like an ER 25 years ago or a Seinfeld or so on or Friends. So yeah, it's true. And then for our show, if it's for family, it is a niche thing where, you know, we we did enough, we got enough people watching it and getting Netflix or whatever to justify it being on for five seasons. But I'm sure you could, if you stopped a hundred people on the street, maybe two of them would have heard of it, you know? Uh, and actually <laughs> I, I, had a, I did a little like scientific, non, non-scientific survey, which is that um, one year after our third season, I believe it was Bill Burr got everyone a gift, which was a beautiful gift, which was a jacket, like a blue denim kind of jacket, like that you'd wear, like if you were on a work somewhere, like a work jacket. But on the back of it was the logo of our fictional airline, uh, Mohican Airways, which is <laughs> this like Indian, like shooting an arrow, a plane that's a flaming arrow, whatever. Uh, it was beautiful. And he got it all for all of us, everyone on the show. It was such a wonderful thing. And I've worn it like around all over the, I went, I was in New York a couple of months ago. I wore it there. No one has ever stopped me <laughs> and said, Hey, that's the that's stuff of that show, you know? So uh, that's how I know that nobody knows about it. But, um, but enough people do, you know, and, and it's, what's amazing to me uh, is that our show has had, and I think continues to have like this incredibly focused fan base of people who really, really, if you, if you get into it, then you really get into it. And so yeah. we have an online community of, of people on Twitter and on Reddit and Facebook groups that are really into it and have watched it like dozens of times and, and pick everything apart. And that is amazing to me, you know, but it's, we still never got into that thing, you know, the, the cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'm wondering what it's like as the creator and showrunner of a show like F is for family or co-creator. Cause you created it with bill, right? Yeah. And you're working with a company like Netflix and then Netflix comes to you and says, right before you know you're about to shoot the fifth season or to uh, record it that this is the last season do they give you data do they do they give you a reason beyond just you're done well a little bit i mean they used to not give any data and then starting about a year and a half ago when we were when our fourth season came out then they started doing this thing where they would have these uh calls where they'd say uh after 10 a 10, a 10 days and at 28 days and they would say, this, this is how many people started you're watching your show. This is how many people finished it in these first 10 days. This is how many people have seen things about it, whatever. So, and I was like, wow, that's great. You know, so, but uh, I don't know, still, still, uh, we, we were hopeful to go on beyond uh, that, beyond season five. And that we had plans, I had plans to keep it going. At least I, th- I felt it could have gone for another couple of seasons. But um, then we got, we got the call from them uh, last summer, summer of 2020. Um, so almost two years ago now, uh, saying, well, we're so, we love your show, but it's just, we just feel like this is probably going to be the last season. Mm-hmm. And then uh, there's not much we could argue back, you know, saying, well, right. Uh, and I'm uh, oh, sorry. And, uh, not an appeals process. <laughs> no, there's no appeals process. And it wasn't like we could go, well, we're going to go to HBO now. We, we couldn't do that. You know, like right. Netflix owned the show and controlled it. Yeah. And so that was that. So then, but the thing that I'm grateful for is that we got to do it and I'm grateful that they gave us enough time to then um, really write an ending to the show right towards an end. You know, they didn't tell us like yeah. when we were halfway through making season five that this was going to like we were getting canceled, whatever. They they gave us plenty of time to get to get it ready and to really think it through and get to an ending that we were happy with. Right. I think that happened on Hannibal where I don't know if you ever watched Hannibal on uh, I I know NBC. Yeah, yeah. They, they, they had a really weird last couple of episodes and it just sort of ended and all the fans, same thing with Pushing Daisies. Right. It's another one that ended uh, prematurely and a lot of fans were upset. I think there was a show, it might've been Hannibal, it might've been one of those other ones. There was that show about time, about time travel too, um, that I kind of liked that was on NBC as well. I forget what it was called. Oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about. But it was like these three people traveling through time on, in this weird kind of time machine and, and you know, stopping the Hindenburg and all that kind of stuff. Might've been that show, but I read that they were like, we're going to write a cliffhanger at the end of this season. So there's no way they can cancel it. <laughs> but they did anyway. <laughs> Network is like, uh, that's okay. As you may have noticed, there are great resources and advice mentioned in all our episodes. And for many of them, we actually collect all of these resources for you in one easy place, our newsletter. You can go to dreampathpod.com newsletter to join. It's not fancy, just an email about each week's episode, featured artists, and resources to help you on your journey. Now, back to the interview. 
You know, the thing I love about F is for Family is that it, it's a very nostalgic show for someone like me. I'm 50 years old. And so I grew up in the 70s. And so that, that sensibility of the kids just running amok, the older brother beating the shit out of the kids that are bothering his little brother and having no consequences for it, you know, and just yeah. there's, there's so much truth about that decade that's revealed in F is for Family. But I'm wondering how you struck a balance between not having the, maybe the uh, racism part of it glorified or just passed off as, as this is funny. And also being, you know, just being woke, basically. I hate that word woke because I think it's overused, but you know, you, you, you're capturing the sensibility of a decade that had its problems. Let us, let's just put it that way. Sure. And nostalgically, I love everything about that decade and the way that you featured it. But you also were careful, I think, in the storytelling and in the characters and how they dealt with those weird situations of misogyny and racism and kids riding without seatbelts. But also there's an element of sadness to it too, because, and that's the woke part of it that I'm, I want right. to explore with you. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, I hear, I totally agree with you. I wouldn't say, yeah, woke is a word that has got a lot of baggage to it, but um it's funny because over the course of the time when we first started coming up with the idea, I think part of the part of it what attracted me to it so much was was the element just of like you said about what it was like being a kid in those days. And um, I'm a little bit older than you, but we're from that same time where, yeah, like that was the the thing where they go, okay, see you later when the you know see you at dinner time, you know, just go off and have fun and just whatever. Like it was unheard of now, you know, I live in a big city, I live in Los Angeles. So, uh, you know, my son is in his twenties now, but when he was a little, I wouldn't have just said, go off and play in traffic, you know, on Ventura Boulevard. <laughs> right. So, uh, but I, I think, but I know people who grew up here who lived in that time and that was their, that was their life then, even then in the seventies and eighties, it was like, even if you lived in the middle of studio city or wherever, and you just ran off on your bike and did stuff. So it's, it's universal. So it was, it was a lot about that, a lot about that, particular thing. And I think what I brought, I'd like to think of some of what I brought to it was that kind of jaundiced eye on history and, and uh, adding some of that stuff. So like in our very first episode, so much of that stuff was in place where there's the show, the, the Sunday morning talk show, like called Feminist Issues, and it's hosted by the guy, you know, right, right. and then and then later on, he's hosting now, you know, whatever black news now, whatever and he's hosting <laughs> the show with all the black people. And he's saying, well, now the racism is cured. What are we going to do now? You know, that kind of thing. So it was always important for me to do that, but also to present it in a way that in a way this present like, well, that's the way it was, you know, but hopefully that without somebody saying this is horrible, you know, like just sort of presenting it in a way that made it clear that our point of view was this was a terrible thing. And but this is what it was like then and without without having a character comment on it or mm -hmm. or say you know so i think any any attitude or political attitude or social attitude we have towards that stuff is just sort of baked into the show without sort of stepping outside of it and someone saying oh this is this is horrendous you know yeah and i think bill burr was the perfect person to capture that nostalgic part of it because his comedy yeah is very much like that yeah. and i i think his comedy's evolved over the last decade for sure Certainly. Where, you know, some of it, you look at some of his um, bits and, and you're like, ooh, wow. You know, like, because yeah. he, he did push the edge in, in terms of like mm -hmm. being nostalgic about, you know, times, yeah. decades old, um, mm -hmm. you know, problematic times. Right. Um, but then Laura Dern's character pushes back on that. And I think that was a nice d device in the, uh, yeah. in the narrative. I, I will say too that Bill, I mean, Bill is really evolved as, I think, as a writer, as a person and, and like, he's incredible. He's been an incredible partner to work with. And one of the striking things about this final season was the thing that he came up with, which is the scene where um, the character of Rosie gets pulled over by the police and they're sort of mishandled, you know, in a, in a racist slash corrupt way. And that the character of Bill, who's a little bit of Bill as a kid, you know, gets to see that he's, he's been idolizing these cops the whole season, like spending all his time with them and thinking they're great. And oh, this is hilarious, you know? And then he sees, he sees up up close, like what what these guys are capable of doing, mm -hmm. and that was something that was very important for Bill to to put in the show. So it's been, yeah, it's been incredible. And one thing I'll say too, I've said this before in other interviews, which is which is incredible to me, and it makes me kind of I hate that thing where people say this is humbling, you know, because to me that usually means they're they're that's the opposite of what they're trying to say. Right. <laughs> I do mean it this way. It was that I think that we had I had a little bit of a. Uh, an attitude at the time when we were first writing the show, which was 
back in 2013, 2014 or so during the Obama years when um, it was like, ah, we're looking back on this time. Can't you believe how terrible it was back then? You know, how racist it was and how sexist it was and how stupid everybody was back then, you know? <laughs> and like, here we are now. And it's like, it's pretty awful right now, you know? So like, it, yeah, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So it like, really did. Yeah. It just seemed like it's just like all of the things that were below the surface surfaced right before our eyes over the course of an administration. Yeah. I mean, they were always there, but you know, I think that it was just more obvious and, and heightened. And we did a whole storyline uh, in the fourth season about this Mar Laura's character, Sue about to have her baby. And, and she goes to this, goes to the hospital and it was certainly super exaggerated that like she's put in this room where like women can't leave unless their husbands come in to, to sign them out. You know, it's called like the unclaimed women's room <laughs> and they're all sitting there and you know, there's nothing really like that, but then it was a little bit of a thing where there was a paternalism, you know, where the, the husband had to pay for everything and women couldn't get credit cards and mm -hmm. like they didn't drive and stuff. But I mean, that attitude is, is certainly happening again right now in terms of like these laws, these abortion laws and things like that. And basically mm -hmm. a bunch of men telling women what they should do with their body or not. So yeah, it hasn't changed that much. Yeah. Well, very, very special project that you and Bill had together and Laura and uh, Sam Rockwell and Justin Long. I mean, just an amazing cast. Do you think that the gravitas that you brought with you from the Simpsons helped you assemble that talent on FS for family? Well, I mean, everyone came in a, in a different way. I think the Simpsons connection certainly helped. I will say when we first were starting to cast it, people, we found out that people were really big fans of Bill as well. So we go to an actor and say, would you like to be on the show? It stars Bill Burr. Oh my God, I love Bill. You know, so that was great. Yeah. But also I'll give a huge amount of credit to Vince Vaughn, who is one of our executive producers, who the show was originated through his uh, production company with that he runs with uh, Peter Billingsley, where he had a personal relationship with Sam Rockwell, with Justin Long. Uh, he didn't know Laura. I think he may have met Laura, but, but I think getting Justin and Sam in were, were largely through Vince sort of calling them up and saying, hey, come on. Because a lot of these actors, they'll get like, they'll get inundated with offers for everything, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I think the fact that it was uh, Vince asking them, like, got them at least interested enough to read the script. And then they w went ahead and did it. And that was fantastic. And then with Laura, we were looking for someone to play that part. And, and we had a, a great casting director uh, named Julie, um, who, uh, Julie Ashton, who uh, had a big list of all these actresses. Like, here's all the actresses. Like, what do you think of these? And we're like, oh my God, they're all like these, the, the gamut, you know? And we said, well, how about these, 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 these? And she's like, okay. So we heard back from her like a week or two later saying, well, Laura Dern read the script on your, read your script on a plane ride or whatever. And she, she called us and said, yeah, she liked it. She wants to do it. So wow. we were just like, oh my God, this was incredible. Gosh. Uh, and she was, she's, so, she's phenomenal. She's, she's great. great. And oh, a lot of the people on the show were people that I knew of or I'd worked with before. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson, who plays Rosie, I'd known him from The Simpsons. And also he was on Homeboys in Outer Space. He was one of the stars of that show. Dave Koechner, who's just a brilliant comedian, who uh, I had seen his work on uh, Saturday Night Live and uh, the Anchorman movies and all those things in The Office. And I said, this is a guy years years ago i said this is a guy if i ever get a chance to do something i want to put him in it so then i was so happy that he said yes and uh like mo collins who uh, i knew first from mad tv and parks and recreation and i knew she'd be for 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 the amount of people we had who were like very specific for one part like bill you know and, and justin did a couple other smaller parts but like we needed we needed like our version of hank azaria or our version of harry Shearer. you know the kinds of people who could play multiple parts mm-hmm uh, and so that was Mo. Start up with Mo being that Mo plays like a, so many parts on the show. I had met her about ten years before as well, just briefly, just talking to her about like I'd love to find something to do with you someday. And so we called her in, and she did it. And then there's an amazing actor named Trevor Duvall who I'd worked with. Uh, he was in all the Lego Star Wars shows. He played like the Emperor on of Emperor Palpatine and a couple other things. So I knew he was a super versatile, super funny voice actor. So it was just a it was really fun to assemble this this cast. And then as more and more people joined, then we'd, we'd say, hey, how about this? You know, uh, oh, he'll, he'll do it. You know, we had Kurtwood Smith and Carol Kane and uh, Gary, uh, Gary Cole, everybody. It just was like 
I can't believe it. Like they were saying, yes, there's Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad who's played Bill's dad. Yeah. Uh, Frank's dad. Um, just this past season, we had Patty Lupone and uh, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. It's an impressive list of characters. That, yeah. I mean, the, the, the talent that you attracted to that show is a testament to a lot of things, I'm sure. But, you know, the, uh, the gravitas that you bring to the project. And then, of course, as you said, Bill. And Vince, I mean, getting a call from Vince Vaughn is probably a pretty big deal. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. In Hollywood. Yeah. Um, going back to The Simpsons, I, I want to get a sense of, you, you said it's a big operation. How big are we talking about in terms of writing staff, writers' rooms, whether they're Zoom rooms or in-person, showrunners, bosses? Are we talking about hundreds of people here? Well, if you look at the whole operation, probably, yeah. I mean, as far as the writing is concerned, our writing staff, probably around 15 or so, some of which are work every day, uh, you know, full-time like me. Uh, and there are others who are like one time a week consulting producers. That's like Mike Reese, you know, and David Merkin um, are in that league. And then there's some others who like work two or three days a week, you know, so, so at any given time, any given day, there'll probably be around 10 of us, 10 or 11 of us working on the show. Um, in the old pre-pandemic days, we were in two separate rooms and two separate buildings on the Fox studio lot, like just across the street from each other, like downstairs and upstairs room. So one of those rooms is run by Al Jean, who's been an executive producer and, and the showrunner for, for many years now. And then the other room is run by Matt Selman, who uh, over the course of the last few years has uh, kind of graduated up and become a kind of a co-showrunner. So there's certain they kind of there's certain episodes that are Al episodes, certain episodes that are Matt episodes. So Matt has his room, Al has his room, mm -hmm. but we all move around. We all move around. So um, it's a sophisticated thing. We get this. We have a computer algorithm that our red assistant uses, and we get at the beginning of the week we'll go. The algorithm says, Mike, on Monday and Wednesday you're working for Al. On Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday you're working for Matt. That that kind of thing. Really? So we all we all move around. Yeah, huh. yeah, we all move around. It used to be a different system. We used to have a hat where we put na pick names out of the hat and everything. So now it's become this algorithm. Anyway, that's how we do it. But um, we've been Zoom virtual Zoom, you know, since now since the pandemic started in March of 2020. So we're going on two years of that. And even then, it'll be we just break off into different Zoom rooms. Mm -hmm. Right now, we're we're in the course of the season now, where we're just sort of beginning, kind of beginning writing of the new episodes that will become what's called season thirty-four mm -hmm. of the show. So we're just in the process of coming up with new stories, working on a new script, you know, that kind of thing. So when that happens, often we'll break off into smaller rooms. So yesterday, I was in the Matt Selman side, and I think we were our staff of around. 11 or 12 was broken into three different rooms of like four per, four people each each working on a different different idea. So where specifically do you fit into the the dynamic of story and writing? Well, we all do the same. Like we're all like it's all just whatever it is we're doing. So like right now, so yesterday we were working on breaking a new story for uh, a writer uh, named Jessica Conrad who's really great who joined the show uh, a year or so ago. So we're just in the beginning phase of sort of figuring out what her story is about. Mm. Uh, and our one of our co-executive producers, Carolyn Omine, who's been with the show for many years, she's kind of like the riding herd on that particular story. Like that's her, she'll be kind of supervising that story. So she was running that room for me and Jessica and, and two other people. Okay. Um, but then today I'm with the Al side of things and Al, Al's room is working on a script that's already been written. Like the first draft has been written and we're working on rewriting that. Uh, and that's written by another great writer named Elizabeth Averick. So we're in the middle of working on just going through that meticulously, go through like line at a time and punching it up and doing that. But we're all, we're all everybody does everything. Yeah. So it sounds like there, there's one person, though, that actually is the, the originator of the story itself. And then there's folks like you that you're attached in IMDb to, I think, at least 22 right. uh, episodes where you... So those are written by... Most of those were probably originated, like I originated the story idea and brought out to everybody and said, like, here's an idea. What do you think of this? Uh, okay. And then the breaking story part of it, this is like writer's jargon. And I've heard one other guest talk about breaking story, but can you tell us what that involves, breaking a story? Sure. Well, depending on how much of the story already exists at the beginning, let's say. So it may just be a kernel of an idea. You know, in which case, okay, now we have to figure out everything about it. Or, or the original, the originating writer, like myself or someone else, could come up with this is the beginning, middle, and end of it. You know, 
But depending on what it is, breaking the story literally means coming up with what is the story about, what happens in it in a broad sense at first, at first, and then sort of drilling down and, and getting getting more fine with it. So then by the end of the this breaking process, we more or less have like a beat outline of like what what each scene is about, what happens in it, what are the twists the story takes. Uh, and then because we still are on commercial TV where we have uh, we have acts, we have the Simpsons is three acts. So like, what's the first act break? What's the second act break? Like what, how does each, usually on the Simpsons, you're like it, the, the first act, the classic Simpsons episode starts with like, it's about something, anything else. It's about, we call like the act one set piece. Sometimes it's like the Simpsons go to the county fair, you know, and something crazy happens. Mm-hmm. And then Homer ends up buying a, a popcorn maker or whatever. And, and by the end of the first act, he opens a popcorn maker and finds a million dollar bill in or something. I'm just making, this is not a real story, but anyway, <laughs> but that's, but that's like the, the first act sort of leads to, Oh, now, Oh, now the show is about this. That's the first twist usually is like the first act break. Mm-hmm. And then the second act takes that idea and sort of expands on it. More things happen. It gets complicated and it build, builds to some point where there's some kind of crisis and that's the second act break. And the third act is like building towards whatever resolves the story. So, so we, we spend a lot of time that we'll use, uh, we used to have a whiteboard in our room that we'd write on. Now we have a writer assistant who's just sort of writing everything down. And we sometimes have kind of a virtual whiteboard, which will be like on our zoom shared screen. There'll be like a piece of screen that the, that the, uh, writer assistant is sort of making like cards in a way of it. So we sort of keep track of what's going on, Yeah, but that's really what it is. It's like, understanding what the story is about what are the beats of the story where how does it start how does it middle how does it end and that gives the writer who then is then sent off to write a an outline which is basically like a treatment a prose version of the story outlining the beats of each scene and then the outline is then picked over and given notes and then the writer then goes off and writes a draft of that script which the writer then turns in you get about a week or two to write that got it and then once that gets turned in then it belongs to everyone and the one person, the showrunner, the room runner, is now in charge of taking that taking that apart again and making it better and fixing it and rewriting it. And we do that a couple of different times, couple of couple of drafts of that till we're ready to put into production. Right. So when you dropped into The Simpsons, they were already part of the cultural zeitgeist in a big, big way. I think it was two thousand two when you started. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Just. I had one day of work right before Christmas of 2001. Okay. <laughs> yeah. But for real, yeah, 2002. So 2002, you get dropped into this operation that already has these processes in place. I assume Al Jean is there and, you know, yes. Mac Groening. But I always mispronounce his last name. Groening. That's okay. Groening. Uh, but w- did you realize at the time how special that opportunity was? Oh, my God. Absolutely. Yeah. I was, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I remembered first seeing The Simpsons, you know, on the Tracy Ullman show in like 87 or 88 when Fox just started and thinking that was funny. I knew about Matt's work a little bit from his his comic strips and things like that. So I knew who he was. And then when the show took off, like 1990, that was around the time that I was just starting to get involved in doing this comedy performing, the sketch sketch stuff. So all my friends, we were in the sketch comedy group. We were just like, just all we could do was talk about it. Every Sunday it was like appointment viewing, you know, to watch it. I remember being at a big party mm-hmm. uh, at one of the guys' houses, and they're like, "Everyone, shut up! We're going to watch Simpsons now," you know. And it was one of those f- season one episodes. Yeah. So you know, like the rest of the world just exploded, and um, so and so then all during the in- ensuing years, uh, I knew about it a lot. I watched it as much as I could. Um, it was definitely just a huge presence everywhere, and. Um, and then uh, right before I worked on The Simpsons, uh, the show I had right before that was also working for Jim Brooks and for Gracie Films. And it was called uh, What About Joan? And it was a live action kind of three camera sitcom starring Joan Cusack. So that suddenly I was in this orbit of like, wow, these are the people that make The Simpsons, you know, and I got to meet Jim Brooks, who was like one of my heroes of all time, you know, who created the Mary Tyler Moore show and Taxi and directed broadcast news in terms of endearment. And suddenly I was working with him. I just couldn't believe it. And I'd known Al, I'd met Al and Mike on Homeboys in Outer Space. Like That's a story I tell a lot, which is that that's a show that like, even if you look at it now, if you Google it, you'll see it's listed on like everybody's list of like worst shows of all time. <laughs> but it was fun. And it was, yeah. and the writers on that show were all really funny and smart people. And for whatever reason, it didn't work out. It was kind of a silly show and whatever. But, uh, but Al and Mike were consulting producers on that show. So I got to meet them there and I'd known who they were when I first met them. I'd seen their names a lot of connected with the Simpsons and the critic and 
their other stuff. So I was sort of in awe of meeting them. And then they ended hiring hiring me for a show they created called Teen Angel that ran ran for one year. And then we worked again together on another thing. My first kind of the show I consider like the first really great show I worked on was called The PJs, and that was a uh, a animated show starring Eddie Murphy that was set in an inner city housing project. Mm. Uh, it was done through Playmation. There's a whole that's a whole crazy story, but that was an amazing show. Very smart, and the people who ran that were two guys who I still admire and, and really love, uh, Larry Wilmore, and then Steve Tompkins, who had been a, a writer on The Simpsons for the Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein years of The Simpsons. So mm-hmm. I was sort of like, oh, it's kind of rubbing off on me a little bit. This is like, this will be my Simpsons, you know, because it was written in the style, like Simpsons-y kind of uh-huh. point of view and everything. I was like, oh, okay. And I'm working with Alan Mike. It's like, this is the closest I'll ever get to working on The Simpsons, you know. But then after that time, Al went back to The Simpsons and Mike as well. And then Al gradually became the showrunner again and uh this what about jones show was was getting ready to uh was in, on the verge of cancellation and i was like what am i going to do I, I i'm going to need another job and out of the blue al just called me one night and said you know uh, there might be a job available on the simpsons wow. what are you doing i was like well i'm on the show it might get canceled because well if it gets canceled let me know so then i became like <laughs> oh please 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 cancel <laughs> well, we knew we, we knew the writing was on the wall yeah the ratings were not good but i was like Cancel it soon before this Simpsons job goes away. Right. Uh, and that's what happened. And uh, so then that, uh, that was like around 20 years ago, like October, November of 2001. Uh, so then what came into the show, I knew the show was still was in season 13. And it was, you know, I was just I was on this like suddenly I was on this writing staff with these people who I'd heard about, like George Meyer and John Schwartzwelder wasn't on staff, but he would come in to work on it, work on story ideas and John Vitti and these people who I knew of and respected greatly. And I was like, wow, I'm one of them now. And, and I was super scared. So writers' jobs, folks who want to break into the industry, what are the opportunities for them in terms of like the really, really low-level positions to just get their foot in the door and start networking and making connections? Well, I mean, the, the absolute sort of uh, whatever, you want to ca- whatever you want to call it, like starter job, whatever is like a PA. Mm-hmm like being the uh, production assistant which is usually uh well it's all changed now because we're all sitting at home on zoom but right imagine this is either before the pandemic or after the pandemic yeah uh the pa is a person who usually goes out and gets like the lunch for everybody and and delivers the scripts and makes copies and all that kind of stuff and sets up the room before the beginning of the day that's a good way to get to get work your way in to get to meet everybody the the ultimate job to sort of become, if you want to be a writer and the hardest one to get is to become a writer's assistant, because then you're, it's a very difficult job. You're, you're basically sitting in the room, writing everything down that everybody says, uh, and at the same time, sort of maintaining the script and dealing with that. And it's very difficult work, mm-hmm. but that's ultimately where you have a chance to be among the writers, get to know them, you know, you're a colleague of them. And then often what happens is that a writer's assistant, you know, is given the opportunity to write a script on his or her own if, if an extra episode comes available. And that's happened on The Simpsons. Uh, just about every one of our writer's assistants over the past few years has been given the opportunity to, to write a script. Nice. They've they all done a fantastic job. But then that could hopefully lead on to, once you have a credit like that, then it's easier to get an agent. And hopefully that leads you on to other things. You know, yeah. some of our writers, one of our writer's assistants is a great guy named Matt Marshall who went on after working with us, he went on and was a writer on um, that show, The Last Man on Earth, with Phil Forte and a couple other things. And, Fantastic show. Yeah. And, and on an episode family, uh, the, we had a very small staff the first year because our budget was so low. But our writer's assistant was an amazing guy named Henry Gamble, who I knew I knew his dad. But um, but he, 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 I just said, Henry, like there's only three of us here today. You know, if you want to if you want to pitch something, go ahead and pitch. You know, and he did, and he was he was great. He's super funny. Uh, I knew that he was funny already because he had done like improv and sketch comedy at NYU. But um, so when we got picked up for a second season, I, I just bumped him up to be on the writing staff. And then he became like a mainstay of the writing staff. Nice. All the way to the end. One last question sure. before you uh, go back to your, your day job here. What advice do you have for writers in terms of the do's and don'ts in a writer's room and just on the staff in general? Because I know toxic work environments they can present or manifest in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I would guess that a toxic 
worker, a writer, would not have longevity in the industry. That's very true. But what what does that look like? What are the things that you see that just say, you know what, this person's not going to last very long in this industry? That's a great question. Well, the, the main thing I think that if you ask this question of, of anybody, probably 95 out of 100 people will say it's, especially in comedy, I've never been in a, in a, drama, a drama writing room, which is a little bit different, but it's still so much about collaboration and it's about sort of like giving your individual, it's interesting because you have your own individual talent, your own individual point of view, your way of thinking of a joke or of a thing that the other person in the room wouldn't have thought of. And so a lot of it is ego driven. Even the idea of saying like, I think I'm good enough to write for Homer Simpson, you know, <laughs> is a pretty big, you have to have yeah. a pretty big ego in that way, you know, but at the same time, you have to give it, you have to give it over to the to the collective, to the room, you know? Right. And so it's just a short way of saying, or a long way of saying that um, if you become too defensive about your stuff, you know, if you pitch something and the room runner shoots it down and whatever, and then you just, okay, I'll get them the next time, you know, or, or if you wrote a script and they're changing your line that you worked on, you were up till two o'clock in the morning on Thursday night writing it, and then they're going to throw it out. You go, okay. You know, you don't go, well, like that, you know, that that's what gets you in trouble. Like the people the people who who don't give in to the collaborative spirit of it and fight fight for what they think or or resist or mm-hmm. or only pick the other the other the other person the other kind of personality that doesn't work in a writer's room is the person who is quick to pick out to notice the problems with things but not not pitch what we're going to do about it you know so it's very easy to say like that joke didn't work but what's hard to say is like well what if we did this instead like you're always trying to you're just trying to keep the ball rolling and right. keep everybody going and make the script better and you have to sort of give it, give in to the collective will of the show, and the, the people who who cause those don't act that way or, or fight or too much or bog things down with saying, "Well, I still think that you know we're on page twelve right now. I still think back on page three that the thing I had pitched was better than that." Like those are the people that do not get asked back. <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So don't be an asshole. Right. Have some have some humility. Right. And uh, learn how to collaborate. And it might be hard. You might go home that night and and tell your your husband or your wife, like, God, it's like great joke, but they killed it. You know, mm-hmm. take it out there, take it out. Right. Yell in your car when you're driving home or something, you know, or whatever, but don't, you know, it, it doesn't help. Yeah. Mike, Mike Price, great advice. And thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you, Brian. I had such a great time. It was such a, such a fun thing to do. Hey, thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If so, I have a favorite ask. Can you go to wherever you listen to podcasts and leave me a review? Your feedback is what keeps this podcast going. You can also check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook with the handle at DreamPathPod. And as always, go find your dream path.